Hello there, this is Fiona, host and main GM for What Am I Rolling, a twice-monthly RPG one-shot podcast. This is a special bonus Q&A episode to tide us over to the next one-shot, and it is indeed a very special Q&A episode, as a few weeks back I had the absolute pleasure of interviewing renowned game designer S. John Ross of Cumberland Games and Diversions. With an illustrious writing career spanning over 30 years, S. John is probably best known for his work Eurasia, Grave of Heaven, an anime-inspired fantasy world setting, and Riskus, the Anything RPG, a rules-like role-playing game for handy spur-of-the-moment one-shots and rapid character creation. As you might recall, we actually played a one-on-one Riskus one-shot late last year. That's episodes 21 and 22 if you want to go listen to them. I have to say, I had a lot of fun with that system. I think it was really easy to use, so I can highly recommend it if you're looking to try something new on Games Night. If you want to find out more about S. John and his work, be sure to check out his blog, Rolltop Indigo. That's rolltop-indigo.blogspot.com. I'll put links to S. John's blog, work, and recommendations on the What Am I Rolling website and in this episode's show notes. So if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, um, who you are and what do you do? I'm S. John Ross, and I write role-playing games. I've been a career game writer for 26, 27 years, something in that area. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, that's that's all I do, and it's terribly uninteresting. So. <laughs> no, not at all, not at all. One of your best-known works is Eurasia, which is a great mm-hmm. of heaven. And mm-hmm. those who may not know are listening to this podcast, it's an anime-inspired campaign setting. And it is, yeah. In the most recent version of it, it, it can be used in any RPG system, not for the one that it was originally intended for, which was Big Eyes, Small Mouth. And right. I, and I guess to start us off, really, was was there any issues with changing the setting from that original RPG to making it systemless? It was mostly really easy, because the way I game, um, we ignore the rules so much, I don't really think about them, when, when even when I'm working for a rule system. The, uh, and just the nature of the world, it's very um, open you know, to creative approaches and, and, and ridiculousness. So the, uh, that doesn't really attach itself well to system anyway. The only tricky parts, I guess there were a couple places where I expressed the setting through mechanics, like the, uh, the God of Cookery attribute and some of the stats for slimes that I thought were, those were fun. And, and I kind of hated to see those go. And I know uh, the God of Cookery in particular, a couple of people actually emailed me that they were worried about how that would whether anything like that would survive in the book. And I, you know, I, I managed to get a version of it in there non-mechanically, sort of. But no, mostly it was easy because system isn't really where my brain works. Mm. I, was, I was just about to say, I was reading through uh, Eurasia today, just having a quick look at my notes. Instantly, the, the thing that pops out, it must be quite a favourite, is the god of cookery and the slimes right. as well, which I quite mm-hmm. like. So it's interesting for you to mention that as well. Are they your yeah. favourite parts or is, have you got another part that people don't mention, I guess? Eurasia is about a lot of things and most of them are not even meant to be clearly obvious to the reader so (laughs) everything i do is kind of built on a a layer of inside jokes so the stuff that keeps me awake while i'm working is usually stuff that doesn't even translate directly into the reading or gaming experience so um to me it's about lots and lots of things i mean i characterize all of the kingdoms based on my friends for example Mm -hmm. so when i want to know how Tempest and Cinder get along, you know, I, I think of the people those things are based on, how they get along, and if they're arguing lately, then the countries in the world will argue. Things like that. <laughs> you know, so it's it's mostly in-joke. Everything I do is mostly in-joke. I like to think there's a fundamental ridiculousness to everything I do. 
it's a good way to do RPGs. I've got to be honest. <laughs> it, it is. I mean, I'm um, I'm not a serious gamer, but I'm a full time gamer, and I have been for decades. So, <laughs> so long ago, I I wrenched everything I could get out of seriousness and left it aside. That's a good philosophy to have, I think. Mm-hmm. I like it. So obviously with uh, Eurasia, the way it blends anime and role-playing together is great. But the other thing that uh, obviously strikes me and quite a lot of the, the readers have been the first-rate artwork. And so can you go in a bit about how you create the maps for it? Do you base them on places that you know, or is it you draw inspiration from elsewhere? I stare at a lot of real-world places before drawing maps. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's really based on anything, but I spend a lot of time on Google Earth staring at coastlines or following rivers just to see where they go. You know, so it, I try to give, uh, especially lately in my, my new town maps, I, I try to give a, a naturalistic sense to the way things look, but it's all still impressionistic, you know, so mm-hmm. I'm not uh, I'm not wasting a lot of time being scientific or anything like that. It's all, it's all a fairy tale. But I do like to give it a natural look. So it, nothing's based on anything specific. The way I draw it is I put squiggly lines, then I add color until I like it. Uh, I iterate a lot, you know, basically my, my creative process, unfortunately, it's really inefficient, is I make something that sucks, and then I hate it, and then I make something that sucks slightly less, and I hate it slightly less, and I keep going until I'm tired. <laughs> no, I, I, so I think it's a process for everyone, that, but it's, it's nice for you to be so honest about it, because a lot of the time when I speak to other people, they're like, oh, I just, you know, did it in an afternoon, uh, no biggie, but actually, I know it's hours and yeah. hours of... <laughs> Every now and then you get lucky and something goes quickly. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's not usually for me anyway. I'm, I like to say that I work beyond the horizon of diminishing returns, you know, so I will put, you know, a pound of effort into something and I will get something that most people would be happy to publish. Mm-hmm. And then I'll put 90 more pounds of effort into it before I'm done. And I don't get 90 times the return. This, that's, that's never going to happen. So, but I accept that because uh, I have to like it and uh, I have to love it, really. And I'm never going to. So I just, again, it's, it's the process of exhausting myself. So you're talking about how you sort of just go on Google Earth and spend hours looking at stuff. Is there a favorite, any favorite country that, mm. that you go to as your main point or do you just sort of go random? I, I go random most of the time. There, uh, for Eurasia in particular... Eurasia is about the history of the United States and it's about the history of Japan in ways that should never be obvious. So I go back and forth between the U.S. and Japan, back and forth. Currently, I'm working on a big map of a detailed map of Shadow River, the city. And there's an area there where I've got some pork slaughterhouses and I wanted them to look functional in a way that is, you know, both modern and medieval because Eurasia is also a split between those things. And so there I, I spent an inordinate amount of time staring at slaughterhouses in parts of Asia. I went for the more impoverished parts of Asia because then it looks more primitive. <laughs> but the, uh, but uh, so things like that, I'll, I'll do bits of weird research or things like that. And then I'll, I'll publish the map and never tell anyone which one's the slaughterhouse. So again, it's all just for my own satisfaction. Eurasia is mostly about not committing to detail. Uh, so I do lots of details for myself and then I don't commit to them publicly. I like to leave the, the fun bits up to the GM and all the stuff that I enjoyed establishing for myself. You know, that's that's really for the GM to do. So I do it for my campaigns and then I, I don't bother other people with it. As well as a game designer and creating your own maps, you also design fonts. And I do. been used in many TV shows and books and advertising. I'm guessing the process is very similar to your map creating. Uh, technically, yeah. Yeah, but um, same same software. Same software, but um, again, where do you start with creating a font? It was a it was a case of uh, needing some uh, for specific projects. The very first fonts that I built, you know, weren't out 
alphabetic fonts. Uh, Hex Paper Pro, which I, um, I sell now, is an evolved version of the very first font I built because I wanted to make hex maps and I didn't have a way to buy hex paper. And it occurred to me that I could use a font to put the hex grids down. Mm-hmm. And so it was just uh, it was just necessity being the mother of invention. And uh, so I had to learn how to use some font software very quickly to put some shapes in it. And uh, there was a little freeware program in those days called Softy. But that's how I got started. I just needed them for games. Mm-hmm. Once I successfully put a hex grid down, then I realized I could do the paper miniatures, and that's how Sparks happened. Mm-hmm. And I just kept making mapping fonts. And then eventually I decided alphabets were, were where I'm supposed to go with a format, <laughs> traditionally. So I gave that a shot with my first handwriting font, which is terrible. It's really, really awful. Still one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. And uh, And then, you know, the time passes, and I've done well over 200 fonts since. And uh, they just kind of happen. It's it's an accidental thing, and it's uh, I don't know that I've ever gotten good at it, but I've gotten where it, where it pays a good chunk of the rent. So that's yeah. nice. Well, that's incredible. Two hundred over two hundred fonts. Yeah, yeah. Now that's not published. And in, in terms of published fonts, I've only got about a hundred and sixty out there. But I've made uh, made some that are, are either too good to share or too bad to share, <laughs> and that accounts for the rest. But in terms of published fonts, I think my current public count is like one hundred sixty three, one hundred sixty four. That's incredible. I give it no credit. I um the uh, like I said, it's it's really uh, Douglas Adams once said something about uh, looking back over your work and not realizing how far you've come. You know, you, mm. you you realize you're at the you're at the top of this large hill that you didn't intend to create. There's there's something like that definitely to the font side of me anyway. So go on then, sort of to what brought us together is Riscus. <laughs> Um, I love the way I love the way you say that. <laughs> I, and I've encountered I've encountered so many pronunciations of it over the years, and they're all correct. And okay. yours is more yours is more correct than any of them. Oh, but I've good. never heard I've never heard yours before. So. <laughs> I don't know if that's more the the British person in me who's trying to trying to make sure it's pronounced, you know, in the Queen's English or what. But I, I say it wrong too in terms of the Latin because it's a Latin word for for laughter and ridiculousness. And uh, and I've been told that the Latin version would be like with a rolled R and a long E and kind of an O sound, Ooh. like Rhesus. But I don't. I, I say I just say Rhesus myself. Yeah, mm-hmm. I say Rhesus. And uh, and some people say a lot of people say Rises. I get that one a lot. And I'd never heard though. But you do Riscus. Yeah, Riscus. Which yeah. I love. And I want to. <laughs> I want. I want to change the name to that. I want to. <laughs> oh, well, I'm very glad you like that. Can you give us a brief overview of uh, Riscus, uh, what it is, and what you would say? as the creator, um, its goals and philosophies are as a role-playing game. I think it gives its own overview pretty well. It's only four pages long, so... I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, essentially, it's a class-based role-playing system where you make up the class and make up what the class means and give it some dice and you're done. And uh, it's actually a lot faster even than that sounds. And you generally will have three to four of those classes, which are called cliches in the system. In terms of the, the philosophy, it began as a playtest engine. Uh, when I was working on another role-playing game in the early 90s. And I was doing um, big campaign adventures for this other role-playing game. And my players did not like that game. And that put me in a, a difficult spot because I have to test adventures before sending them to the publisher. You know, you, without playtests, you, you get you get awful things. And so I, I developed Rhesus specifically as a playtest engine for those adventures for another game entirely. And then I shared it online, and it became, it evolved into, well, what happens if we approach every game with the same kind of loose creativity that I needed a playtest engine for? 
So what if every game is that same kind of pure character perspective, non-mechanistic approach to problem solving? And that's where Reese's ended up. Uh, so what it is now is very much like what it began. It began as a comedy RPG. These days, it's less specifically comedic. Um, it began as a playtest engine, and these days, it's for gaming as if you're playtesting, which is my favorite kind of gaming. So Riscus uh, doesn't seem like a serious RPG, but it's one that is incredibly popular. So he's got many fan sites, there's a huge Facebook group, and it's been translated into many different languages. Um, I guess, what is the reason why you think it's become very popular? So the serious thing... Rhesus is absolutely not a serious role-playing game. And I think it goes to, to fair lengths to, to let you know that. But it is, and I think this is what people respond to about it, it is a very sincere role-playing game. And this goes back to, to some of the same things that I talk about when with Discordianism, which is uh, people ask me, are you really a Discordian? I'm like, yeah, I'm really a Discordian. They're like, seriously? I'm like, no, not seriously. That would be missing the point. <laughs> you know, but sincerely... And uh, it's the same thing with Rhesus. Rhesus is not at all serious about itself, not at all serious about anything, but it is extremely sincere. I think that's better than serious. Why do you think it's become so popular? Like you said, it was used to sort of, in your view, just to playtest uh, a system. Uh, to playtest adventures, yeah. Adventures. Um, as far as its popularity, well, there's two parts to it. Um, being short really, really helps, especially on the translated thing. It's an easy weekend translation project for a gamer. And that's uh, been a huge benefit to it. It's in, I think it's like 18 languages. I, I lose track. Some of them fairly obscure. <laughs> but it's a weekend translation project. It's not like a you know, 600,000 word tome that you'd have to devote months of your life to. Mm. And I think that's been a, a tremendous benefit. And, uh, and just in terms of finding readers, likewise, you can decide if you like it very quickly. So I think just being really short actually has, has helped. I think it's got a certain attitude toward gaming that comes clearly off the page and people either like it or they run screaming from it, which I think is a good sign for anything. You know, it, it creates a strong response of one sort or another. And it's got very friendly stick figures. <laughs> um, really just very, you know, despite being very thin and frail, they're huggable. And uh, I think that helps it a lot. Before the stick figures were added, it wasn't nearly as popular. It had an explosion of popularity following the, the stick figures edition. As you were saying before about Riscus being, you know, it's four pages long, you either love it or you hate it. It's something that I can explain to a player within mm -hmm. two minutes or under. And I think that's what good RPGs are, that you can explain the key concepts, you know, at bullet points and then set off. Absolutely. Well, and it's hugely important to my style of gaming in particular. And here I'm a bit old fashioned. But to me, it's very important that the players never have to learn the rules. And that the GM handles the rule stuff while the players can just sink into character. That's the way I like to play. That's, that's the experience I like to provide as a GM. And so with something like Rhesus, that's really, really easy. I can keep all the rules in my head. And the players, you know, they don't have to know all these mechanisms for solving the problems that the game throws at them because there really aren't many mechanisms. And so they can just think in terms of their character's perspective and, and try to do what their character would do. And that works. They're not, they're not punished for not knowing a subclause of section such and such of the rules. Yeah, with a lot of games, when you're trying to work out how to solve a problem, you might be staring at different books for ages trying to find the wording. Whereas this, it depends right. on or your people, character. Or people, or, yeah, people, uh, and in any game, people stare at their character sheets when it's time to do something. Yes. And, and in a very mechanistic game, your character sheet will provide a list of, you know, things that do specific defined things and you'll be like well i'll press this button essentially to do this 
Whereas Arisa's character sheet is only going to remind you of the kind of person you've made mm. <laughs> and uh, kind of puts it immediately back in your court. There's always that tendency to look to the character sheet in times of trouble. Mm -hmm. But in Rhesus, you're just going to be reminded of, of the, the approach you took. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I really like that because, again, uh, it doesn't tie you down to specific mechanistic solutions to problems, which is key to what it was originally, which is playtesting adventures. When you want to test an adventure, you need to throw a lot of weirdness at it because you're never going to predict all the different approaches people are going to make. There's thousands of gamers that are going to try this thing that you've never met, that don't meet any of your expectations, that don't meet any of your presumptions. And so testing adventures is always about the, the weirdest solutions possible to really kick the tires. And that's why it's Rhesus is still a great adventure testing engine, and that just happens to make it a fun way to play anyway. And a lot of times, and we've said, I've said this before, is that with books as you know, other RPGs which have you know, books upon books of different classes, different races and stuff like that, whereas here it is like, what do you want to play? And you right. pick it. And you could be anything. You could even just be a mundane person on the street or you could be a Viking or a space person. And it, it doesn't require the player to be that creative. It's ideal if they do, but if they're a new player to any system and then there's like, right. I don't know they, what to they, do. They can dive right in and any of those concepts are as easy to write down as any of the others. Exactly. Whereas in some games, they try to, not even intentionally, but you're kind of steered towards certain choices because if you want something else, it would involve, well, we'll need this book, we'll need this book, and we'll need to write a house rule for this. And certain concepts can drag the creation process you know, nearly to a halt. Yeah. And in Reese's, every concept is pretty much equal. And that's the idea, is that every concept is equally good. It's just about, you know, if you're going to play it sincerely and have a good time doing it. Yeah, there are lots and lots of advantages to using Rhesus as a, as a core system that I really wish I could say I, I did on purpose. <laughs> and um, that would be awfully satisfying to say, yes, I had this grand and elegant vision from the beginning, but instead I just had this specific need. And as it turns out, you know, like I said, the needs of testing and adventure are the needs that push gaming to its limits in the best possible way. And so this was built in a way that turned out to be swell. But uh, again, it's important to understand that I was not aware of that at the time. But since I've learned, and, and unfortunately it's spoiled me now, and I've uh, other Reese's fans uh, described the same thing to me, where they're so spoiled by being able to just do a character, just get it right on paper and get playing, mm. that when they go to other games where they've got to run through the mechanical hoops to get a character down on paper, it really feels tedious and slow and unnecessary to them. Yeah, loads of obstacles before you get into the game. Like Yeah, and, and so you know, so that's the big warning, really. I should put a big warning label on Rhesus. You know, this could actually harm the experience of other games for you. Sorry about <laughs> that. You know. And part of it is also, you know, I'm I'm very old and crotchety. And so I'm impatient. I've reached the point where I've learned uh, I'm familiar with well over 200 role-playing systems currently, and uh, and I'm done. I don't need any more. Mm. Whenever I need, read a new role-playing game, I just want to know about the worlds, and I just want to know about the adventures, and I just skip the rules. And part of that is just once you've learned a couple hundred role-playing systems, you know how they all work. And what becomes interesting is the play experience. So I, I just skip ahead to the settings. And uh, so I don't know... If my limitations are, are the same uh, as would apply to a younger, more flexible mind, because mine is neither of those things anymore. But, uh, you say that, but I, I think I agree with you to an extent. Like, yeah, there's so many role-playing systems out there, but they're all, I feel, at times, once you've gone to a certain point, 
they're all variations of each other or have components and eventually you would get to a point where you do know a system just because it's comprised of like three or four other systems so yeah I yeah guess. you recognize the pieces and and we and you have similar goals there are broad they're broadly different styles of gaming but we're all somewhere in the same neighborhood yeah. uh, we game for different reasons but they're recognizable to each other so after a while, yeah, you just kind of absorb the systems into your DNA, and it's like, okay, I've got that. But where's my character? What's happening? What, yeah. are we, what are we up against? What are we trying to solve? Who are we meeting? What are we exploring? So I keep coming back to those as being the real questions of game design, is world design and adventure design. And uh, Rhesus did that to my head in a lot of ways, even though all these other systems were extremely important in getting me there. Ultimately, Rhesus is the tiny hill I rest on, and, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy about that. And again, something that we talked about sort of early on just now, your sort of the style, uh, sort of your voice. So again, with uh, Riscus and uh, Eurasia, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the way the writing comes across uh, is sort of inviting. And but you said you leave gaps for others to fill in with their own ideas. Yeah, and I, well, and I and I try to really invite that process. And thank you, by the way, that's very kind of you. I write the way I game, and and I game you know pretty loose. I only write about things that I'm pretty really excited about. So generally, I think. <laughs> Um, whenever you're reading something I've written, you're reading me on my best days because I'm really into whatever I'm talking about. Mm. And so you're not getting the, the mopey me or the growly me that you might get after I've been watching the news, for example. Mm. You're getting the happy GM me. And it's, uh, and I think that's really kind of the core of it is that I, I game from what I'm into. I write from what I game. Yeah, so it's, it's all about enthusiasm to me. How often do you get to play or run Riscus? Do you prefer being a player or a games master? In terms of how often I get to, very blessed to live in a very nerdy college town so that whenever I want to run a game, I just put it on the schedule at this shop and people show up and we have a good time. So in that sense, I get to run it as often as I feel like running it and people show up and that's great. Uh, In terms of how often I get to play, uh, Reese's in particular, almost never. People are really intimidated to run things for the people who made the things. So I never get to play Eurasia games. I never get to play Rhesus games. I never get to play Encounter Critical. There have been exceptions, fortunately, to all of those. Mm. I was in a really excellent, uh, technically I still am, in a really excellent space opera campaign run by a guy in California, a Rhesus campaign. And I love that campaign. I love the character I play. And it's just the best time. But in general, there's uh, people get intimidated about running it for me because they're afraid I'm going to correct them on one of the voluminous rules. You know, and I try to put them at ease. I'm like, no, really, you're... You're overthinking this. I promise you, I haven't. Because that's the thing. I always, I'm always happy to run sessions or be a part of it. But a lot of people, once you start running one shots or when you start running campaigns, instantly like, oh well, you're you're so good at it. We don't we don't want to upset your style or, or anything. It's an interesting thing where people aren't confident to you know run something even for the creator of their own game. I find I find that right. interesting. I also find I encounter it more with longtime gamers for some reason when they should know better. Recently, I've run for a couple different people who almost immediately wanted to GM because they were, they were new and they didn't know to be intimidated. And so I encouraged them, like, yes, you should do that. that is, it is really fun and you should try GMing right now. And some of them did, and it was, and it was great. Whereas the longtime gamers are more likely, in, in my experience, and I, don't, I can't really account for it, uh, are more likely to have that hesitation. And uh, so my advice to all new gamers is GM early. Uh, as soon as you get into the hobby, do some GMing and get past, well, before you ever learn to be intimidated by the idea. Uh, quickly, start GMing. You know, don't, don't wait to be an expert. You don't have to be an expert. You really actually, all you have to do is have an adventure in mind. 
uh, or you can you know download one. You don't even have to come up with it. All you have to do is have an adventure to work with. Going on then, talking about adventures and stuff, what do you think are the best ingredients for a good adventure for any RPG? Well, again, with the type of gaming that I do, to me, I have, I have a, a basic five-ingredient recipe that I use for all adventures. The first one is the easy one. It's just stakes that are relevant to the PCs. The PCs need to have a reason to be engaged. Problems they're going to enjoy solving. Reasons solving them won't be as easy as all that. NPCs that I'm eager to inhabit as the GM. And uh, places worth imagining. And that's the five ingredients. Pretending that there's five uh, sidesteps the fact that there's only one. And the only one is problems they'll enjoy solving. Um, everything else really kind of comes automatically into the mix while you're thinking about the players. Um, so you have to come up with problems that they'll enjoy solving, and everything else kind of takes care of itself. But that's the trick. Problems they'll enjoy solving can be challenging. Not in an intimidating way, obviously. Don't be intimidated, GMs out there. <laughs> but, the, um, but secretly, it is really, really super intimidating. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I can definitely see that when you come up with an idea for an adventure and you have... NPCs that you're like, well, these will be great. And just trying to get that hook. And then not only thinking about the players themselves, but then the characters there and going to inhabit, would the characters themselves be like, oh, no, we don't want to, what, what's in it for them, you know? And then. Right. That's why there needs to be stakes relevant to the PCs. But that part's easy. Even when, um, like, published adventures will usually have preset stakes. Mm -hmm. And they're always the easiest thing to rip out and replace with something that's more appropriate to your group. The stakes are never woven very deeply into the problem solving. So it's just a matter of players look at their character sheets to solve problems. You can look at their character sheets to know what the next adventure is about. Mm -hmm. Because when they make a character, that's their wish list of what they want to experience. And uh, all you have to do is give it to them. The only trick, again, is making sure that you're providing a problem that they can sink their teeth into. Because ultimately, uh, at least in Rhesus and other traditional role-playing games, it's Character-solving problems is what adventures come down to. What do you think it makes a good RPG player? Anyone, first of all, can be a good RPG player. So willingness to play, honestly. The willingness to show up. Um, there are things that can make, I guess, a great RPG player. <laughs> um, I think a lot of that is generosity. The very greatest players care about every other player at the table. And the very greatest players... Uh, will look over and see if the newbie is being really shy and looks nervous and will gently you know, splash some spotlight on them. Other than that, it's just a, a willingness to really sink into character and just immerse and be that character. And maybe a passion and maybe a little bit of talent for creative problem solving. That's what makes a great player. A lot of the time, certainly in more recent years when RPG is becoming a bigger thing, purely through like Twitch and Discord and Skype, and you see what you would assume professional players, which, you know, aren't professional, but they are voice actors, they are actors, and so they set a, a very maybe unrealistic bar about how games should be run or how you should play your characters. And it's not, I agree, like uh, RPGs are for everyone. And the, the idea of generosity and making sure that everyone has their moment or will do something and be able to contribute is a really valuable life skill as well as a skill in an RPG game. It is, and role-playing games are a, a social interaction. They are friends gathering together, even if, even if they've never met before. And it, is, it works like friendship. So the things that work in friendship work in games. The facet of fellowship is really core to the experience. It's an ensemble medium. And I think in any ensemble, looking out for, for everyone 
is a huge part of what makes it really feel like family. And that's when, when gaming is fantastic, is when it feels like family. So you mentioned before you've read over 200 various gaming systems over the last decade or so. Oh, I've read over, I've read over 500. 500. There, are 200, there are 200 that I could GM tomorrow if you asked me to. Wow. Any one of those you would consider your favorite or in the top five at all? Oh, sure. My favorite role-playing game of all time, bar none, easily, is the first edition of the Ghostbusters RPG from the mid-80s. That's far and away my favorite role-playing game of all time. And, and Rhesus owes a debt to it in a way that would probably be, um, uh, someone could sue me, you know. I mean, <laughs> the, the core uh, difficulty, the target number system, is very much the Ghostbusters target number system. And the core attitude toward mechanisms and their importance in play is very much from Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters was designed by some of the greatest role-playing designers of that or any age. You know, Sandy Peterson, who designed Call of Cthulhu, who was the lead designer on the computer game Doom, with Lynn Willis and with, um, oh, now I'm terrible. I've forgotten the name of one of our... He designed Pendragon. Um, yeah, anyway, him. He was great. Um, so some of the best people ever who have names that you can Google <laughs> design this game. And the writing is fantastic, and the presentation is lighthearted, and it's everything I've ever loved in a role-playing game is right there. So that's my favorite. After that, it's... Uh, Call of Cthulhu and, uh, and early editions of Paranoia. Ah, Paranoia, yeah. So it's that the sort of genre you Greg tend Staff to... Greg Stafford, for God's sake, I don't know why that happened to me. <laughs> In my defense, I only woke up an hour and a half ago. You so. did, yeah. Do you prefer games that are sort of like horror slash sort of sci-fi compared to high fantasy? Because obviously uh, Eurasia is obviously more fantasy, I would say than it, sci-fi and stuff. It is, it is although it also, it isn't. Um, Eurasia is very deliberately, it is a space opera campaign setting wearing fantasy cosplay. <laughs> um, which is to say, Eurasia is most crucially, it's designed around Star Trek and Doctor Who in terms of the way I build adventures. And when it came time to do the fantasy world for Bessem, I'm like, well, I'm going to do that and put it in Renfair cosplay and, and sell turkey legs for $7. <laughs> but while it's, it presents itself as a fantasy world, I absolutely design it as a space opera. So that goes to what I think about genre, which is genre is just funny hats and costumes. Mm. But in terms of whether I prefer horror, I absolutely don't. To me, horror is onions, as I like to say. Which is to say, I love a lot of things with onions in. But if you offer me a plate of onions for lunch... I'm not interested. And that's how I feel about horror. Horror is something that I love in things, but I don't want just a dish of it. So Call of Cthulhu is sometimes marketed as a horror game, and I absolutely disagree. Call of Cthulhu is a mystery role-playing game that uses the supernatural to make the mysteries easier to design. And, uh, <laughs> and it's, a, it's a science fiction pulp game. You know, Lovecraft was the pulpiest of the pulpsters. And ultimately, it's weird science fiction. And the structure is a mystery, and the horror is by the by. So I don't see it as a horror game. Most of my gaming is actually historical gaming. You know, my favorite role-playing games, none of those are historical. But the ones that I spend a lot of time working on, I mean, my, I wrote GURPS Russia for Steve Jackson Games back in the day. That's a book that really talks the type of gaming I like to do. And my biggest project these days is Fly From Evil, my biggest project for the last several years. And that's 1930s private eyes and gangsters in San Francisco. That's a historical crime drama. But again, I approach it all as genre work. If I design an adventure, I insist that that adventure work well 
in straight historical just as well as it works in fantasy, just as well as it works in space opera, because genre in the end to me is just funny hats and voices. Talking about sort of the landscape of RPG gaming, obviously we talked about before about how it's changed a lot, certainly in the last maybe five or ten years with the rise of sort of Twitch and streaming and all that sort of thing. Certainly, yeah. Do you have any predictions for RPGs on the whole in, say, the next decade or so? Anything that you think will become maybe a, a big part of the landscape? The technology that people are using to, to game over the internet is only going to get better. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have uh, a greater ubiquity of online gaming, and it's going to feel increasingly natural, and, uh, and it may even become closer to a default approach. More and more people can play internationally with one another. I've certainly gotten a lot of use out of you know pulling old favorite players from different parts of the country because I've moved around a lot. Um, I can pull together a dream team of favorite gamers now and then, schedules permitting. I don't know much beyond that. I'm bad at predicting things. Uh, there'll be less of me in it, to be sure. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm heading towards retirement soon, but I'll still be gaming a lot. I just won't be publishing. So really, my only predictions is I think there'll be more people meeting in the non-physical space. I think that's going to keep going. In terms of how that might change things, I really think mechanistic gaming, which has been on the rise in recent years, is going to keep on being on the rise for some time. And I think computers will also make it easier to make them even more mechanistic. I think eventually you'll have things where you're integrating game rules more directly into the software you're using to game with people on the other side of the planet, um, which means you'll have uh, even more mechanistic solutions. If the current trends continue, role-playing is going to become more about the performance and less about creative problem solving which meh, you know it's not my favorite but i understand why people enjoy it something you said earlier struck me as is interesting i've heard other people say it that the performance oriented podcasts and videos and stuff like that kind of set a high standard i actually think it's kind of a low standard because when it's more about the performance it's less about creatively solving problems in character and more about presenting that character in such a way that other people who are observing can enjoy it, mm. which is great too, because I love, I love radio theater and that's what we get. We get improvisational radio theater mm. with video. Sometimes we get improvisational theater period. I don't necessarily think that it's a higher standard though. I think it's uh, I think it kind of reduces the games to performances. No, and I, I think I agree. I think what I was sort of trying to say that was more like, you know how sort of everyone, if you have an Instagram or, or you know, social media projects sort of the perfect ideal or, or what people would assume is your the ideal life. And I think that maybe is the thing, is that sometimes you see performances, whether it be in Theater or on Twitch or wherever, where you, you see, wow, they're doing it in this way, that's amazing, I could never live up to that standard. It's a standard where you have it sort of like, you see it and therefore you have nothing to compare it to or you instantly compare it to yourself and your own experiences yeah it's it's a media standard it's a performative standard and don't get me wrong i love seeing people dress up in costumes and mm. play games i think it's beautiful and i enjoy it myself and if more people wore costumes to my games that'd be fabulous that'd be you know, <laughs> I, I would i wouldn't know what to do with it but i'd be very impressed <laughs> uh, but it's not actually for me at least it's not what the game's actually about mm. and while i enjoy it as a decoration on the game um that's how i see it i see it as a, as an embellishment as a decoration rather than as gameplay. And to me, the gameplay is sinking into character, being faced with a problem with a group of friends who are also sinking into character. And we all try to solve that problem together. And sometimes we do well, and sometimes we do poorly, and usually there are bad jokes. And that, that human connection, whether we're playing humans or not, is, uh, is, is the heart of the experience for me. And uh, it is, for me, again, ultimately a problem-solving exercise and an exercise in, in pure role-playing. But theatricality is, to me, a separate uh, joy mm. from gaming. 
and the, the other thing is just there's a finite amount of attention we have, a finite amount of energy that we have. Mm-hmm. And for every every bit of time you're spending thinking about keeping the audience engaged, that's a little less time you're thinking in character because the character doesn't know there's an audience. And that's how I feel about mechanisms too. So I feel about costumes and mechanisms pretty much the same way. They're distractions from me thinking in character. Obviously, I don't actually get to be a fictional character in a fictional world, but I like having the experience of getting as close as I can manage. And as a GM, I like to offer that to the players. People have asked me to do, um, you know, put my games online and stuff like that. And I'm, I'm like, I'm kind of open to that because I've recorded them for years anyway. I have boxes of cassette tapes going back to the early 90s. But I record them to improve my GMing technique. <laughs> yeah. I go back and I listen to, for the places where I pause too much, things like that. Not really for other people to listen as entertainment. Mm. And I think the minute I start worrying about there being an audience, I feel like that would take a little bit of my precious energy away. And I'm really, really stingy with it. So I'm glad that other people do it. The other distraction, I guess, would be people calling out rule corrections or help mm-hmm. to the players who right. may not remember stuff. And it's it's very hard to do, I think, depending on the performance space. Obviously, if a loud theatre and lots of people are chiming in, that's one thing. And then if you're in the sort of the back room of um, a pub, players themselves will realise what they're saying and then change what they were originally going to do. And that, mm-hmm. that is interesting. Again, it's a unique thing that doesn't really happen so much, I'd say, on like streaming shows unless someone is there looking at the chat and that tweaks their performance. But in live shows, right. it does happen quite a bit. Yeah, that doesn't map to any experience I've personally had as a mm. gamer. I've watched that happen and mm. I think it's fascinating. The closest I've ever gotten to gaming with an actual audience is a few convention runs mm. where you've got a live audience gathered around like the final round of a tournament for some, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. And there people are really polite about making no comments whatsoever. So you don't really have that mm. kind of thing where you've got people pitching in, mm. you know, on the side, uh, in a sidebar that there's no real map to that experience. I don't want to harsh anyone's mellow, you know, yeah. if they're having a blast, good on them. We've obviously talked about advice for game masters and stuff, like that, but going on to sort of game developers, do you have any <clears> top <throat> tips for people who are interested in creating their own RPG game? The three big ones. Design around what you love, not around what you imagine others are interested in. People who design to try to fit what they see as a market demand design tedious things. So design from a position of passion. Whatever you love playing, put that in your game. Design around the gamers that you enjoy and admire, not around the ones you dread. And I think this is the biggest mistake that happens in game design, is people work so hard to try to fix the behavior of the worst players that they end up hobbling the freedom of the best players. And so I think if you want to make something really special, design around that trust. You know, trust that the players are awesome, trust that the GM is awesome, and design for awesome people. And after that, test the hell out of it. (laughs) Just test and test and test. And when you're done testing with your own players, send it out to blind testers so they can test it. So design from a position of love, design from trust, and then test the hell out of it. I think that's the the recipe for excellent design that won't necessarily sell well. (laughs) So do you have any future plans for uh, Riscus and Eurasia? Mm, yeah, I'm, I'm wrapping them up. <laughs> the, uh, I'm edging toward retirement myself. Mm-hmm. So I'm finishing the libraries, and there's a bunch coming up for Riscus. I've got a couple more free modules coming out. If people don't know about Toast of the Town, they should go download that because it's as free as Riscus, and it's a swell adventure designed for new GMs. Mm-hmm. It's got far too much to read, but there's reasons. The... <laughs> the um, 
So if you like reading, that's good. But I've got a couple more of four more free adventures coming out. I've got a couple of short campaign world books coming out. One is uh, Eye of the Galaxy, which is the BCs are reporters for an intergalactic newspaper. And that's ridiculous and fun. And another one is Point Lagrange, which is where the PCs are service staff at a space resort. So, you know, bellhops and masseurs and things. Saving the galaxy with their special skills. I've got the second edition of the Reese's Companion uh, will be the final thing I publish for Reese's. Mm. Eurecia, I've got a couple of small things coming. Right now I'm working on this enormous detailed map of Shadow River and its immediate environs. Mm. And that's been my main Eurecia project lately. So it's just a really pretty map of the city showing every last woodshed and, and footpath. And it's been taking me years, although this is this is almost certainly the year where I get it done because I've been on a downhill run with it now. Other than that, I've got other projects for other games. Mm -hmm. I've got uh, Intruder Moon in the works for Encounter Critical. And that's about a moon that is invading and must be dealt with. And it's <laughs> called the Intruder Moon. And if you've always wanted to play a game where there are Wookiee cowboys... That's the adventure for you. Encounter Critical is a very special beast. It's designed to explore the, the beauty in, in the awful. So I'm very happy with how Intruder Moon's coming together. Uh, and then there's my big thing, Fly From Evil, the private eyes and gangsters in the, in the 20s and 30s. And that'll be the last thing I publish. That'll be where I close the doors at Cumberland Games. It's when I publish the biggest thing it's ever done. <laughs> well, it all sounds very exciting. Well, that's sort of come to the end of our questions. I guess we'll just sign off with saying, uh, where can we find your work and follow your exploits? Best place to, to find it is my blog, Rolltop Indigo. I would just Google my name, honestly. <laughs> Seriously, Google knows where I live. Um, it's It's... It's, it's good about that. It's easier to say that than to provide a URL that's likely to change in a year. So yeah, just Google S. John Ross, Google S. John Ross Rhesus, Google S. John Ross Eurecia. Any keywords that come to mind? Uh, <laughs> Google S. John Ross, terrible old person. There's probably some <laughs> results for that too. Different keywords take you different places. They're fun. So. No, brilliant. Thank you so much. I've really appreciated your time. and Thank you for indulging me. No, I like talking about this stuff. So it's... Uh, if you ever, you know, we don't have to record it. If you ever just want to talk about games, feel free. <laughs> I'm hoping to do more of these special Q&A bonus episodes in the future, including Q&As on the one-shots we've run here at What Am I Rolling? Yes, I know we've not done one recently, and I promise we'll do one soon, I promise. If you have a question you'd like to send in, or a submission for help my fictional RPG characters having difficulties, then please send them along to our email address. That's whatamyrollingpodcast at gmail.com. And that's it for now. Great. Well, see you soon.